Amen. Please go ahead and open your Bible up to Genesis chapter 18. If you're using the little church Bibles, you'll find it on page 12. Continued in our series called Promise. I'm looking at the promises that God has made, and as, as Rosie prayed so long ago, which have been fulfilled in Christ and will continue to apply to you and me today. And this morning we're thinking about what it looks like for God to be promised judger. Be a promised judger. So I'm going to read um, verses 1 to 15 in Genesis chapter 18. We're going to read um, chunks as we work our way through uh, these two chapters this morning. So please do have your Bible open in front of you um, so you can track along with that. Hear the word of the living, righteous, and just God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you've come to your servant. So they said, do as you've said. And Abram went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make hicks. And Abram ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, they were advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Let's just pray as we come to consider these things. Father, we pray that what we just sung would be true um, as we come before your word now, that you would give us Christ, that you would show us Christ in all his glory and all his sufficiency and in all his grace, and that you would humble our hearts and by your spirit help us to see him and to live lives that are worthy of him as a result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we've been thinking about uh, this idea of promise, and way back at the beginning, if you remember in Genesis 12, we saw that the promises that God made to Abraham are described in Galatians 3 as the gospel. And the scripture, Galatians 3, it says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So God's promise is gospel. God's promise is good news, but, and this is what we come to this morning, it's only good news for those who place their faith in that promise, who place their faith in Christ. Genesis, Genesis and, and ultimately the cross of Christ will, will show that good news, that promise, is delivered in the context of a sinful world 
and that they do not come, the promises do not come at the expense of righteousness and justice in a sinful world full of sinful people. That's what we see here this morning in these two chapters. The promises do not come at the expense of righteousness and justice. Both the, the righteousness and justice of those who would choose to live by faith in those promises and also of the God who makes those promises. And that's what we see in Genesis 18 to 19. We see both of these things. We see God demands justice and righteousness from Abraham and his family. In verse 19, if you look down, keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So those who live by faith are to be righteous and just people. And then we see in chapter 19, God demonstrate his righteousness and justice. So if you are a Christian here this morning, living by faith in God's promises in Christ involves obedience. We've been seeing that throughout these chapters. It involves obedience. It involves keeping the way of the Lord. But what is the manner in which we are to walk in these promises? The manner is to act justly and rightly. As a church, if we are to serve as a blessing to those around us, to the, the nations, we, like Abraham, will only do that when we keep, uh, keep God's way and obey his commands of obedience in a just way and in a right way. That's how Abraham was going to be a blessing to the nations, by being just and right. And if you're not a Christian this morning, these chapters serve to show you that God will deal justly with your sin. But the good news of the promise still stands. The good news of Jesus is that mercy and blessing are still available for those who believe in him. So what we're going to see this morning is this, that we are called, you and I are called to walk by faith in a righteous and just manner because God is righteous and just. We're called to walk by faith in a righteous and just manner because God himself is righteous and just. So the first thing we see together is this, keeping the way of God's promise requires us to do what is righteous and just. So that verse 19 in, in chapter 18, verse 19 there is really central to what we see God seeking to, to do in this passage. We are called to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that what is promised will be given. And let's just remind ourselves what was promised. God promised Abraham a people, offspring, a nation, he offered them, or promised them a place, the land of Canaan, and he offered or promised to, to bless them. People, place, and blessing. Those are the three big headers that he promised. Blessing being living under God's rule in worshipful obedience to him. And then as they were blessed, they were to serve as a funnel, a conduit to the nations. A nation, a people through whom that blessing would flow to the rest of the world. The life of faith is an obedient life. Our faith is a walking faith. As we saw last week in Genesis 17, verse 1, if you flick back, Abraham was called to walk, to walk before God and be blameless. So our faith is a walking faith. How are we to walk? With righteousness and justice. And really, if we were to take those two words, they really represent the concept of being godly, 
of being godly, of, of loving God, of loving our neighbor, of obeying God's commands. In many ways, I, I often think of this as how you might describe an older saint in your life who you look up to. A word that captures them is they're a godly person. They're a godly saint. That's what we're talking about here. Righteous, just, godly, obedient, loves God and loves neighbor. And in chapters 18 to 19, we see an emphasis here on how that godly life should serve to bless the nations. Okay, remember Abraham's name has just been changed to Abraham. He would be a father of a multitude of nations. So here, even in Genesis, here at this point, we're beginning to see that the purpose of these promises was to go beyond one people. We see the blessing of the nations emphasized in verse 18. We'll see it in Abraham's intercession for the nations and in the grace of God at work through all the nations right at the end of chapter 19. And as I was thinking about this, uh, the book of Romans really speaks to this as well. Sometimes we think Romans is this big doctrinal heavyweight book that's about the gospel, and it is. But at the, the beginning and the end of Romans, you see this. Through whom, verse 5, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the, for the sake of his name among all the nations. So we see the gospel, the promises of our God, are meant to lead to obedient faith that makes much of Jesus' name and the glory of God among the nations. So that's what we're called to. We're called to walk in this righteous and just manner. We'll see that in Abraham's life as we walk through this chapter but firstly, we see that that righteous and just walk comes firstly from friendship. So important. Comes from for friendship. That's what verses 1 to 8 teach us. The Lord appears before Abraham here. And from the rest of these two chapters, we realize that these three men, one of them is the Lord, Yahweh. Two of them are angels. So we here have the Lord Yahweh becoming present with Abraham. What we have here in those first eight verses as he feeds them is a picture of intimacy with the Lord. It's a reminder of how things used to be in Eden when God walked in the garden and of how things will one day once again be in the new Eden when we also are in the presence of God. So the Lord along with these two angels, they, they eat a meal with Abraham and eating a meal is something that friends do something that family does that's what this is talking about it's a picture of relationship of friendship it's what the covenant we saw last week creates covenant is meant to create closeness with god covenant is meant to create closeness with god god saves us in order to be with us james 2 verse 23 talks about this, talks about Abraham being a friend of God. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that's what we saw last week. He believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Covenant creates closeness. Covenant creates friendship. And we see Abraham here acting in a righteous and just way, in a godly way, in the way that a friend would act. Three ways, hospitality. He shows hospitality to the angel, to angels and to the Lord. And notice how urgent he is, okay? He runs, he runs, it's quick. He knows who's in his house. He knows who's before him. He shows them hospitality. He shows them generous hospitality, okay? 
He gets the cap. He, he goes, you know, to uh, to great lengths here. I, I kind of love the picture of him going to Sarah, who's in the tent, and, and kind of sent her, Sarah, quick, quick, make some cakes, quick, you know. The picture of urgent hospitality. We see humility. He bows before his visitors. He bows before them in verse two, and we see service. He feeds them. He bows before them, and he seeks to make sure their feet are washed. So too, you and I are to enjoy close relationship, close friendship with God in Christ and with one another. Our friendship with Christ should lead to friendship with one another. How much do we need that? Our obedience and our friendship should also follow the pattern of Abraham and ultimately of Jesus. It's hard to see how Abraham served those who visit him without thinking of Jesus. Hospitality, humility, washing feet. We're to show hospitality to strangers, both to those within the church and those outside, in a non-begrudging way, in a generous way. We're to use our homes for the sake of hospitality. We're to use what we have for hospitality. It doesn't mean it has to be fancy. It doesn't mean it has to be eloquent. It's about generosity of heart, ultimately. Hebrews 13, 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. We're to show hospitality. We're to show humility, both before the Lord and to one another, as friends. And we're to serve one another and the world around us. And God continues... Through this table, which we'll participate in in just a moment, he continues to communicate his friendship in Christ with us by regularly eating around the table with us through the bread and the cup. That's what this table communicates. A big part of what this table communicates. It communicates new covenant closeness, new covenant friendship. A while ago I read a book on friendship and one, one thing that kind of is still in my mind as I read that book was that the author Drew Hunter pointed out that in John 15, obedience, which we're thinking about here, obedience to Jesus is always framed in friendship terms. John 15, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. That's the place from which we obey, from friendship. So we're to act just and right from friendship and then by faith, verses 9 to 15. So they have this meal with the visitors and then the Lord reaffirms what he's already promised in chapter 17. Again, graciously affirming his promises. But in a year's time, okay, so now they've got concrete timeline. In a year's time, Sarah will give birth to a son who's going to be called Isaac. And God's covenant will be passed on through Isaac. That's what we saw in chapter 17. We see it affirmed here once again. And Abraham, Abraham laughed about it last week. He's old, he's 100. Sarah is 90. And verse 11 makes clear that having children is no longer even a possibility for her. Sarah now also laughs. They laugh in unbelief. Lord, this is impossible. It's literally impossible. 
As those who strike to walk by faith, we often feel that about how God works in our lives and in our world, don't we? In our lives, in the church, in the world around us, this is too hard. This seems impossible. Maybe we've even come to the conclusion it is impossible. Often we resonate with Sarah and Abraham. We feel old. Maybe some of us literally. We feel worn out. That's what the language she uses there. She feels worn out. How's this going to happen? I'm too old for this gig. I can't do this. And to that the Lord says in verses 13 to 14, if you looked up with me, and not in a harsh way, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why do you doubt? Shall I not build my church? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why do you despair? Shall I not give you what you need to do my will? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Why do you fear? Have I not already overcome? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So whatever doubts or fears we might have, the Lord knows them. Okay? Sarah wasn't in the tent when she laughed. She's outside, but this is the Lord. He knows. He knows our doubts and fears. And he graciously confronts them here. He brings it to light that Sarah has laughed, but he doesn't do that to beat her down. He does it to elicit and draw out faith from her, to remind her that he is the Lord, that nothing's too hard for him. And he affirms his promises to her. You and I are too like Abraham and Sarah, even if our faith is sometimes weak, we're too trust in him, to believe in him, to have faith. That's what Romans 4 and 11, Hebrews 11 so clearly shows us in the New Testament. Let me just read Romans 4. I hope he in hope he believed, this is Abraham, in hope Abraham believed against hope. It seemed hopeless. It seemed too hard. But in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as have been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And Sarah too, make a mistake, Sarah too is also held up as an example of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 11, by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So we're to do righteousness and justice from friendship by faith. And then in verses 16 to 33, for the sake of the nations. We're to do righteousness and justice from friendship by faith for the sake of the nations. If you look down at verses 16 to 33, I'm just going to read those. Then the men set out from there, so they've eaten, the men set out, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Saying that Abraham surely will become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord 
by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very great, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still, stood, still stood before the Lord. Then he drew near to him and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare for the, the 50 righteous here in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. There's a humility again. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. And again he spoke. He said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, not, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So the Lord reveals to Abraham what he's about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he's exhibiting here is an honesty and a transparency to his covenant friend. Abraham, something Abraham and Sarah failed to do. Abraham lied about Sarah in Egypt. Sarah lies about laughing in verse 15 of this chapter. Didn't laugh. The Lord here is modeling, first of all, that a righteous and just walk is one marked by honesty and integrity. Humility, hospitality, service, honesty, and integrity. The question is, why does God reveal what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah to, to Abraham? Because if Abraham is going to bless the nations and be a man, a family, a nation of righteousness and justice, God needs to show him what that justice and righteousness looks like. And then in verses 22 to 23, where there's all that back and forth, we see Abraham intercede for the nations, for Sodom. He acts justly and rightly by asking God to act justly and rightly. He calls on God to be true to his character. Did you see that? And we must know that God here isn't getting God to calm down. Okay, this isn't Abraham going, hey God, you know, calm down here. And, and it's not him getting God to change his mind. Okay, God is all-knowing and unchanging. He knows how many righteous people are in Sodom. He already knows the outcome. The purpose of this whole back and forth is to demonstrate for us through Abraham what keeping the way of the Lord by pursuing righteousness and justice looks like. It shows us that Abraham is already living out what he's been called to in verse 19. He cares about justice. That's what this whole prayer is about. He cares about justice. 
He cares big time about God's justice. He cares that God's justice and righteousness are demonstrated truly in the world. That's the passion behind the prayer. That's what we see, we see in verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? He cares about this. That's someone who's trying to walk in a just and right manner. And the intercession also serves to show us a couple of things about God. God's justice is measured and controlled. It's not random. It's measured and controlled. God's justice is fair. He won't destroy the righteous along with the wicked. And that also makes his justice merciful, doesn't it? In this scenario, he would spare a whole city of not just sinners, remember? Psalms described as great sinners for the sake of ten people. So if we are to be a blessing to the nations, we must follow in Abraham's example here. We must be those who warn. Part of being a blessing to those around us, to the nations, is informing them of the justice and the righteousness of God and warning them of that. Of proclaiming a gospel that says, none are righteous, no, not one, that we stand under the wrath of God, yet mercy and grace are available in Christ. We're to warn, we are to command, verse 19. We are to not just be righteous and just in our conduct, we are to call the next generation, we are to call our families, we are to call our friends, our church to live a godly life, a righteous life, a just life, in obedience to God's commands. If we're not doing that, if we're not doing that well, we'll end up like Lot and his family. And we'll never be effective witnesses in the world. We also follow Abraham's example when it comes to compassion. Abraham knows how simple Sodom is. Yet despite that, he intercedes for them. Abraham, despite knowing how simple Sodom is, and remember he just fought the king of Sodom, yet here he has, we see him interceding compassionately for God to act in a mercifully just way. Warning, commanding, compassion, and concern. He has a concern for God's justice to be evident in the world. Do we have that same concern? Intercession. He prays for the nations. He prays for the nations. He prays for God to show those who don't know him mercy. Are we doing that? Do we pray for those around us who do not know God to be shown his mercy? And he also shows fear and submission. He says, this last time I'll ask you, he, he submits to the Lord. He, he fears the Lord. God is judge and he will judge and he will judge justly am i but dust and ashes and it's this judgment that we see next keeping the way of the lord requires us to do what's righteous and just and then secondly because god is righteous and just if you look down at chapter 19 The two angels, I'm going to read, the two angels came down to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. 
When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we, we, we'll spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside them and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters whom, who, who have not known any man. Let me bring them to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, the fellow came to, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So a number of things we see in chapter 19. Firstly, we are deeply wicked. We really see here echoes of Genesis 6 and the flood. Genesis 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughtless heart was evil, only evil, continually. Sodom is a place of great sin. Chapter 19 shows us that so clearly. We see the men of Sodom to the last man, did you notice that? To the last man, seek to sexually violate the two angels. And when they are blinded by the angels, they wore themselves out groping for the door. So they're physically blinded, and they still have their hearts set on sin. It's a totally depraved picture of the sin of this city. We must note, though, that Sodom's sin isn't just sexual immorality. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see that Sodom exemplifies the sins of social oppression, adultery, lying, helping evil, pride, greed, and social injustice. But it's epitomized by this sin. This is the depth of depravity in our world. The corrupt nature of humanity, it doesn't mean that things are as bad as they could be in every circumstance or in every place at every time, yet these things are still a part of our world. And for some of us, tra tragically, they may also be part of our story, either both as a victim or as a perpetrator. God, who is righteous and just, will not let this stand and go by. God will not let this go unpunished. And just before we see that, we should take note here of Lot. We've, we've been following these characters throughout this chapter. We've seen Abraham, we've seen Sarah, and we've also seen Lot. We saw in chapter 13 his choice to live by sight rather than by faith. Look where it's gone. Look at what it's done to his family. We should see here a stark warning of the consequences of faithless decisions. We are deeply wicked. Secondly, God justly destroys the wicked. The sin of Sodom 
is so bad that God is just to destroy it. And that's what we see him do in verses 24 to 25. If you look down, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Sodom really is like the flood all over again in Genesis 78. And both of them are in God's word as examples to you and me of the final judgment that Jesus will bring about when he returns. It serves as a warning to all of us that God will judge us and that we reject his mercy in the gospel at our peril. A number of places in the New Testament warn us of this. Matthew 10, Jesus has sent his disciples out and he says, what are you to do when people reject the message that you give to them? says this, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or time. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that time. Rejecting God's word, rejecting the gospel is no small thing. Jude 7, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And in 2 Peter 2, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Loved ones, these are sobering verses, but they are here for the sake of warning us and for leading us to the mercy of Christ. If you have not come to Christ in repentance and faith, than being warned of what lies ahead of you. Lot tried to warn his sons-in-law in verse 14. You see that? They thought he was joking. God's judgment is no joke. So run to Jesus while there is still time. He is merciful. And that's what we see next. We're deeply wicked. God justly destroys the wicked, but God is merciful. So in amongst this judgment, we also see the Lord's mercy. Verses 12 to 23, the angels tell Lot to take his family and get out. They're given a warning. They've got time to get out, escape before the, the judgment comes. And verse 16 is explicit about this. The Lord being merciful to him. Even though Lot's life is a total mess, God still chooses to show him and his family mercy. And do you see the picture there? We'll see in a minute, he, he kind of lingers about and the angels grab his hand and pull him out. In his sin and in his stupidity and in his sinfulness, the hand of God through the angel pulls him out. Isn't that our story? Note two things here. Verse 16, Lot lingered. He lingered. Let us not linger when it comes to God's mercy. Let's run to him now, not when it suits us, not on our time scale, but on his. The call here to go to his mercy is a call to go now. Now. And then Lot's wife in verse 26, as they're escaping, she looks back and dies. She turns to salt. When you and I turn from our sin and our old way of life, beware of looking back. Don't turn back. 
Keep looking and running towards Christ. Don't long for your former days. Don't linger. Don't look back. Yet amazingly, Lot is not totally unrighteous. He still shows hospitality to the two angels. Do you see the comparison between him and Abraham? He still showed them hospitality. He still tried to protect them from harm by taking them into his home instead of letting them sleep in the square. The New Testament itself describes him as righteous. Lot serves as a warning, yes, but he also serves as an example to you and me that God will preserve and save those who are righteous those who are imperfectly righteous. Like you and me. Second Peter shows us that. If he rescues righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. But we still might wonder, really, Lot? How does the guy who was just willing few verses ago, to let his two daughters be raped by a mob, get shown mercy. Verse 29, look down with me. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Lot is ultimately shown mercy here and saved because of Abraham, because of righteous Abraham, who is a more faithful example. God remembers the righteousness of Abraham. The same thing we saw back in the flood. God remembered Noah. Noah's family is saved through Noah's righteousness. Abraham's family, Lot, is saved through Abraham's righteousness. Loved ones, you and I are Lot. You and I are Lot. We are saved because of Abraham's offspring, Christ and his righteousness. We are saved because God remembers when he looks at us, Christ. That's how unrighteous people like you and me, like Lot, like Abraham, can be counted righteous by faith in Christ. We're deeply wicked, God justly destroys the wicked, yet God is merciful and brings good out of evil. Does get worse before it gets better, the end of this chapter, but God brings good out of evil. So Lot escapes God's judgment. That's what we see in that final section in verses 30 to 38. He escapes God's judgment, but the consequences are still there. His wife is now dead. His son-in-laws are now dead. So the consequences of sin still weigh heavy in his life. And they still continue, continue, sin still continues to plague his family. In verses 30 to 38, his daughters get their father drunk. And we see them sexually violate their father in order to get pregnant by him. Since their husbands are now dead. Remember? The husbands who thought judgment was a joke. And whilst Lot's daughters are far from innocent here, Lot's ungodly leadership of his family means that he isn't innocent either. 
He has not led his family well. That's probably putting it mildly. After all, similar to Noah, he gets blindly drunk two nights in a row. Just that one detail there should cause us to stop and consider the deeply damaging effects that drunkenness does and can have on our lives and on our world. Two nights in a row, Lot gets blindly drunk and look what happens. And then Lot's daughters give birth. They conceive by their father. They give birth to the two nations of the Moabites and the Ammonites in verse 38. But as we read on in our Bibles, we find that the Moabites and Ammonites, yes, they are bad news. They become bad news for God's people. But we also find them in the family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. From Solomon's disobedient marriage to an Ammonite came his son Rehoboam, who's an ancestor of Christ. And of course, well known more so, King David's grandmother was Ruth the Moabite. Out of evil, the deepest of evil, God still in his grace can bring about good. Our worst mess-ups are not beyond the mercy and redemption of the Lord. Our disastrous legacies, like Lot's, are not beyond redemption. The hope of the gospel can shine even into the darkest hour of our lives. That's what's happening here. That's what the coming of Jesus says to us. That's good news. Good news we are to respond to with obedient lives. Good news we are to bless those around us with, our friends and our families, our neighbours and the nations. So if we want to glorify a righteous and just God, we must live a righteous and just life. We must walk by faith in a righteous and just manner because God is righteous and just. But we do that knowing in our continuing weakness and often failure, we have a Savior who perfectly walked that way for us. And whose life, death, and resurrection means that we can live that way in the strength of the Spirit and with the hope of eternal life. I'm just going to pray for us as we come uh, before the Lord's table of friendship. Um, so let me just pray for us. And then we'll come to gather around the Lord's table together. Father, we want to humble ourselves in this moment and recognize that we are dust and ashes. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Yet in your grace you unite us to Jesus and you give us eternal life. Father, forgive us for how we have been faithless. Forgive us for how we have lived so often by sight. Help us to live by faith and help us to walk in obedience. Help us to obey your commands and in our moments of <coughs> failure, help us to run to Christ for forgiveness that we know is so readily available to him. In Jesus' name.